my individual experience isn't the same as my my colleagues or my fellow Aboriginal or Indigenous executives either. So I think that as a whole in the public service and even as a whole as a country, as we we you know we take this path together and like I said, we try to bring those two histories into one. You know that we keep in mind that everybody has lived a very different life as any Canadian has. Indigenous perspectives. Indigenous perspectives. Indigenous perspectives. Stories from Indigenous public servants. Kansei. This is Indigenous Perspectives, a program where we hope to explore the experiences and perspectives of Indigenous public servants, what reconciliation means to them, and what it can be for Canada. Reflecting on the International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples and the 10th anniversary of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the Honorable Jody Wilson-Raybould said, The recognition of rights, in particular the inherent right of self-government and the right to self-determination, is a large part of the foundation of the recognition we are committed to realizing here in Canada. The UN Declaration, along with the principles respecting the Government of Canada's relationship with Indigenous peoples, will serve as fundamental tools for advancing reconciliation. Many Indigenous leaders from Canada were among those who strove to make the UN Declaration a reality. Reconciliation is a journey, not a destination. Change comes through actions, not words. We, Canada, and Indigenous peoples all have work to do, and it will be challenging. As Indigenous peoples continue to take back control of their lives, Canada, as a federation, is strengthened. In our country's 150th year, it's our time to ask what we want the next 150 years to look like, and the place Indigenous peoples will have in making Canada an even greater nation. On this episode, a special one-to-one conversation with a dynamic and enthusiastic public servant whose passion for development and empowerment in this sphere is both stirring and infectious. Please join me. So, care to introduce yourself? My name is Candace St. Aubain. I am the Director General at Indigenous Affairs Directorate within the Skills and Employment Branch at ESDC. And how long have you been working in the public service now? I have been in the public service for approximately 10 years. I think I might have just surpassed it actually in, uh, in November. What made you join the government after, I'm assuming, a, a private sector career? I was actually working in the NGO field. My background is uh, early learning and child care, so I was working in child care. I uh, did a little stint doing some instruction with uh, a local college here on the Quebec side. 
and then transitioned. I was doing my degree at night and then transitioned into the NGO sector. So I was doing a lot of the advocacy work for children's rights and children's issues, in particular Indigenous children's issues. And I ended up uh, meeting with some uh, public servants who are working on some of the federal child care programs for Aboriginal children, Indigenous children, and um, ended up getting recruited. I never sought out the federal government. It was certainly not something I thought would be of interest to me. I thought it would be boring. <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> so what does it mean to be an Indigenous employee in the workplace, or what are the realities for Indigenous employees as you see them? Well, I think that's a very um, individualized question. Uh, I think that's uh, everybody experiences as any employee would, their own set of circumstance, their own set of realities, um, both visible realities and not so visible realities. And I can only speak from my experience and, and what I have come to encounter and to work with and sometimes work against. It was an interesting time coming into the public service throughout the last decade. It was a very different vibe, as many public servants can attest, regardless if you're Indigenous or not. There was a um, less focus, perhaps, on some of the other groups that may work, like visible minorities, et cetera, Indigenous uh, components, Francophone employees and stuff for a very long time. And, and my experience was always you didn't really come out and, and disclose. Um, with Indigenous populations, of course, it's such a, a varied group and, and there is no stereotypical look, or there is, but we certainly try and um, kind of break down those stereotypes, right? Uh, so fortunately for me, while I have the dark hair and complexions, not as dark as, let's say, some of my other uh, friends in the public service who are who are First Nations, um, I'm still you know, pretty would call an East Coast, you know, I, I'm a little bit lighter, so it was never as prominent. And I certainly didn't disclose it publicly when I was um, uh, in meetings and stuff, because I found at the time, it could really pigeonhole you as to what you could do and where you could work within the public service. And I think that those kinds of, um, not, I don't want to say biases, because I always think that has a negative connotation, but those kinds of experiences are normal in human nature, right? And, and I think that we create these kind of groupings of people and where people should work. Um, you know, perhaps those with um, visible and invisible disabilities may work within the Office of Disabilities or, um, you know, perhaps um, multicultural environments like um, CIC or, or international affairs would be better uh, served by, you know, new Canadians or, or something like these kind of misconceptions or perceptions. So as an Indigenous person, and I think we still see it too, is in Indigenous programming and stuff, you see, tend to see the higher concentrations. And for myself, I just wanted to change the entire world. I didn't want to just change right. Indigenous world. I wanted to change the entire world. I wanted to serve all Canadians, right? So for the longest time, we, you know, there was a, a group of us. I can, you know, hold them in my hand, a group of us, some, some Métis, uh, some who were mixed, uh, Inuk and, and uh, you know, maybe someone from uh, out west. Um, we wouldn't self-disclose because we wanted to change the world and change the policy, the policy context. So for the longest this time that's how it was and then and then I came in at a relatively not junior level but I was you know a PM4 uh, working in programs and ended up in an indigenous program indigenous children's program which was amazing an amazing experience 
And then I realized halfway through my career here, I didn't want to fight it anymore. I didn't want to hide. And that's when I started to self-disclose. And not just self-disclose. I just actually started to talk about my experiences when we were doing policy work or kind of any research or discussions and knowledge development. I would you know, talk about my own experiences or those of my family and friends. And uh, I found once I got over my own hang-ups about it and didn't care and how didn't, and kind of took that fight to, to, to prove myself a little bit more, that's when I really started to see my career uh, blossom because I felt more comfortable with uh, kind of in my own skin, if you will, in the public service. So now more than ever before, at least in my career, which is about the same 10 years, uh, I'm seeing more and more evidence of Indigenous culture becoming part of our, our modern workplace, whether it's the cultural center at Place de Portage or the acknowledgement at the beginning of meetings that meetings are being held and government business is being done on on unceded territories. Where do you mm-hmm. see the role for Indigenous culture coming even further into the workplace? Funny that you talk about that. That's something that I struggle with, too. I think that there is... I think that Canada is you know, is going through a, a rebirth, almost a rebirth of its of its definition of, of its nationalism or its national state. And it's, it's we use this term in other ways, but really that reconciliation or to reconcile um, two historical tracks that were happening, one of a colonial track where they were establishing this quote unquote new nation, and then a secondary track of um, assimilation and extermination. And what we're trying to do now is normalize the two into one. And I think that there is a component. I think that, I think that we need to acknowledge some, it, we need to acknowledge that the cultural components where it best fits and where it best makes sense. We're going to get it wrong. That's okay. Because we have to get it wrong to figure out what's going to be right. <laughs> because there's no roadmap to this. Even just the traditional acknowledge, like the acknowledgement of the traditional territories, the renaming of buildings, um, it, it acknowledges the fact that this may not have been the way it is had we not had those two tracks. Those two tracks are what created where we are. And now we're trying to bring those two tracks onto one path. And we have to do it slowly. So I think there is a component. Where we need to be careful is that we don't go too fast, that things need to be paced in a way that makes sense. Makes sense to Canada and Canadians make sense to Indigenous populations writ large, because there is not just one Indigenous culture, uh, and some of them are quite contradictory in nature, the cultures themselves across uh, Indigenous populations, even across First Nations populations, and, and uh, certainly urban and, and more northern populations. Um, but I think it's it's trying to find, and I, this has always kind of been my in the back of my head, is we need to do it in a pace that's respectful, uh, that allows time to adapt because if we try and force fit something because we want to do it, we want to do what's right. And I use kind of the air quote bunny ears, what's right, uh, could potentially create, um, uh, a, a potential negative outcome. So I always take with, you know, trepidation and it's not to slow it down to a point where it's not happening, but it's to make really sound decisions in a, in a like I said, a respectful pace. Um, to allow people the time to grow comfortable with change. And not just 
um, non-Indigenous populations. But Indigenous populations themselves, a lot of Indigenous people now are finally becoming more comfortable talking about themselves. The experiences of, of residential schooling and the trauma that that had, the 60s scoop, uh, the child and child welfare systems and stuff had such massive implications to individuals and adults. You know, we, we have this this stagnant picture, this static picture in, not stagnant, that's wrong, just apologies, wrong choice of words, but that static picture of these impacting a child, right? Because it's all child-focused. They're the, are, they know, the most vulnerable, the most impressionable. But those children have become adults. They've had children of themselves, their own, or, or grandchildren, as it were. So when we talk about residential school system, and we talk about child welfare systems and 60 scoop of children, these children are adults now, change and, and all of the, the lenses that we have internalized or Indigenous people who have experienced that have inter- internalized, will it brings a lot of things to the surface again. Change does that. So this is why PACE needs to be respectful to Canadians to understand the change and the public servants to understand the changes that we make and the importance of the changes that we're making, such as, you know, opening ceremonies, uh, recognition of unceded territories, say, even use of traditional languages, let's say, um, but also for the Indigenous people who are, we're also trying to, to, to make it right for. So as someone who over time is becoming increasingly more transparent or open about their identity, their background, is there anything that, that you wish your colleagues or the public service at large should know about you and your culture and how it shapes your, your identity, your perception? Well, so for me, so I am an urbanite. I did not grow up on a reserve. My family's reserve is not far from here. My uh, grandmother uh, married a mixed blood, so she was uh, removed from the reserve. <laughs> and in 1985, when they brought forward the Bill C-31 through the Lovelace case, um, we had an opportunity as family to um, reclaim and re-register as First Nations. Uh, my grandmother experienced severe horizontal or lateral violence with indigenous, her and her First Nations, I should say indigenous as First Nations, uh, you know, First Nations uh, family members and others, um, as well as non-indigenous where she was, you know, made to feel like the dirty Indian and stuff. And, and she made a very conscious decision as a very strong woman to Thought, you know, sticker her thumbs to the uh, to the establishment in the office of the Indian Registrar and not re-register. She enfranchised and uh, and asked that my aunties and my father and my dad's side um, honor her that way. Now she had sisters who chose not to, and they went back and they got their status. But this was something that my family had always always um, committed to doing. Now it's changed. Uh, Now it's just my dad who's left struggling and trying to make that decision. And this is something that I always feel I need to tell the story of why people, there are choices that people make about their identity that go beyond a number, that go beyond a card, that go beyond the construct of blood quantum, which is something that we're going to start seeing more and more, where it comes down to an individual's right to identify. We have made that choice, and we still struggle. I still struggle with it as a, you know, I my, my dad spoke Algonquin. I mean, it was, it was in my, my grandmother, you know, would get angry and smack them and when they were little kids running around, and she'd, you know, cuss them out in, in the traditional language, just, <laughs> you know, it, and worked it in. And this was something that we grew up with and stuff. But So I am very comfortable with, I know where I come from, but I don't have a, a number because I always find it's 
It's sad the fact that Canada is now the only remaining country to register a group of a segment of a population and give them a, a registration number. I should point out that my partner is Jewish. Uh, his parents were Holocaust survivors. So, I mean, there's, there's been a fruitful conversations around Passover on that. But that, for me, something that I try and instill about who I am and stuff is that I have made conscious decisions about how much power I will give a federal institution about my identity. And I encourage us as we look towards engaging and um, bringing reconciliation into the public service that we not discount the value of a person's choice and a person's right. And how do we find the balance and who are we as a public service to lay down definitions on identity in light of this Office of the Indian Registrar, the 1951 uh, Indian Act, in light of, you know, even the 1867 activities. So I think that there's a whole construct that we can't lose sight of. And I know that's something that I feel very empowered to champion is that we, how do we find that balance between an individual or a collective right and trying to do what's quote-unquote right uh, according, to, uh, according to the mass population. Why do you think Indigenous people should consider a career in the public service? I always think, I go back, I, when I did my, um, I guess my undergrad degree, I took some a women's studies course as an elective, and they talked about the theories of feminism. And one of the theories of feminism that I just seemed to love was radical feminism, where you go into an institution and, and tear it down from the inside to build it back up. And I always, I feel like that is one of my drivers. I love serving Canadians. I love being a public servant. I, um, I feel like I, like my boss is the Canadian on the street who pays their taxes every day, and they're, they're they want somebody as their voice and their champion in the federal public service. And I came in with that in mind, and in particular with Indigenous children's rights, then Indigenous children as being my 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 area of of passion. I wanted to tear down the institution from the inside to make change. Now, being kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and not really knowing at all how government worked, I, you know, came to a kind of smacked, <laughs> smacked head on to that wall to realize, okay, well, I guess I can't change the world in one day. But I encourage Indigenous people to come in here to help make small change, to be agents of change on the inside of an institution. It's one thing to try and make change from the outside. But I think back to that theory, that radical feminism theory, where you go in and you make change on the inside. Slow change. And you think about an, a virus on a computer infecting change. And I know that's a kind of a negative way of saying it, but it takes one small to get, once you get in, it's very hard to get out to make those changes. And you start weaving the change throughout. So as an Indigenous person, I don't even think it's about making change on Indigenous programs or Indigenous policy. It's coming in. If you want to work on in scientific theory, you want to work on international relations, you want to, your ability to come in and make systemic and change from a cultural perspective on how we deal with each other as human to human, second to none. And I think that that's, that is one of the big key players for anybody coming in. And especially we have this amazingly brilliant cohort of young leaders that are coming up. And I mean, I want them to be in the communities to be the leaders of the future as well. But I think even leaders in the Canadian, uh, the Canadian public service, we would just be richer for it, to be frank, um, just because of the fact that they are not afraid to be innovative. Um, they're not afraid to take chances. So speaking strictly as, as an individual, what does reconciliation mean to you? What would be your reconciliation? 
Oh, man. I think I asked the exact same question to the clerk of the Privy Council at one of our EX conferences through APEX once. <laughs> and he turned it around on me and said, well, what would you do? <laughs> that, is the, that is the question, Todd. That is the quintessential question. What is reconciliation to me? Reconciliation to me. I, you know what? I don't know what it is. I, I don't want to limit it by putting a, a, a definition around it. I really don't. And I think that the government, and I think, I think we're there really, hopefully that we're pretty flexible in how we, how we move. I don't think that there is a, a specific one boxed in definition of reconciliation in Candace's mind. I think every little step we take is reconciliation. Every little movement forward is reconciliation, either it be from a programmatic fiscal relationship with, with communities, um, or even just how we, we talk to each other, like anything from a large financial transfer all the way down to how we communicate as humans in the workplace. And that talks, I guess, to a diversity of sorts, but that is all reconciliation in my mind. I would not want to limit it to one or two or three or even 10 actions or even, you know, 80 calls to action. I don't think that's it. I don't think we can limit ourselves to that. I think it's just, it's literally a whole 180 on how we work as a society. Um, and not just in Canada, but how Canada interacts um, internationally with those with strong Indigenous populations. That's all a part of reconciliation. Because I think how Canada represents itself on an international stage is a, a reflection on how it treats its individual populations, Indigenous populations in particular. It's like the political way of saying I don't have one. Okay, <laughs> which is completely fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to limit myself. I'm afraid to do that. I think that that's. It's not. Uh, it won't serve anybody's best interest. I just think we just have to keep pushing the bar further and further ahead. For a typical Canadian, a non a non Indigenous Canadian, someone that really doesn't grasp the significance, the importance of reconciliation, how would you explain why it's something that they should be? interested in why it's something that that is important to to their life and to the country as a whole you know i think whenever stories started coming out about the residential school experience and the experiences that happened the atrocities that happened during that time i think canada the bulk of canadians were shocked at how canada treated these vulnerable children and that wasn't that long ago that that all came to light. And it certainly wasn't that long ago that it was happening. That This is a very new country. It's, it's pretty young. And so I think that kind of cracked the veneer a little bit of how Canadians envision themselves as a, a just society and a, a loving, all-encompassing, bring-everybody-in kind of society. And I think the importance of the reconciliation activities and the work that we're doing and that everybody's doing. I'm excited to see everybody, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, participating in it, is that we are trying to get a, a, to a place where we don't need to have these types of interviews, where we don't need to have these types of targeted investments and efforts to fix a broken society or system. I think that by having it become such a normal component of our everyday life, it becomes a non-component of everyday life. Like it's just woven into our daily fabric of being. And it really is only to the betterment of Canada 
and as a nation um, and on the international stage, because it creates a stronger, a stronger, a stronger fabric. Really, it goes back to that woven fabric, and we become stronger for it. And I think Canadians, you know, they say like ninety percent of Canadians, ninety six percent of Canadians, know nothing about Indigenous people, who they are, their what is what is an Indigenous right? You know, what is Section thirty five? Uh, even just starting with the basic level of knowledge only makes us richer, only makes us stronger, only makes you know, our, our 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 organizations will do better. Our businesses will do better. We'll tap into all of these these unknown areas of of investment and resources and and um, you know labor markets stuff that we never knew because we had such closed mind about it because we never knew about it. We never thought about it. We never talked about it. So just from what happened, you know, you know, twenty some odd years ago with the residential school experience coming to light. It's massive. It's had a big impact on Canada, and this is just taking it to the next step. We went through a little bit of a, a gray period there, a little bit of a the, the lights kind of went on dim for a bit, for a couple of for about a decade, um, where we didn't talk about it, you know, very much. We gave you know some words of apology, but beyond that, we never really made targeted efforts. And now we are, and it's, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's not going to be good. It's going to be uncomfortable for a long time, and that's okay. Like I said, we we have to get it wrong before we get it right, but we'll get it right all together, which is great. Not everybody will be on, on board, I'm sure. But I think there's a, an appetite for change, and uh, I know Canadians want to be a part of that. For the Canadians at large, the the non-Indigenous Canadian that is sympathetic or aware but really doesn't know what they could do as an individual, what are some concrete things that, that they could do to, to help? Well, for one, just knowledge is power. You know, familiarize yourself. There's so many resources available. On, we are the technological age. There are so many resources available online to general population, to general public. Uh, you know, and and just, things just finding out, like, who are the three major groups? And what are some of the other, you know, what are some of the languages? And what are some of the traditional foods? Go out and experience the traditional foods. Go to a powwow. It's great. It's a lot of fun. And there's a lot of good food there. Uh, you know, um, museums, which is, you know, that's a whole other conversation right there. Um, talk about stereotyping. and But there's a lot of history. Learn the history of Canada because we didn't hear about it in our textbooks. Go and learn about it and, and just soak it in and experience it and, and try things. There's drumming circles you can be a part of and, you know, be adventurous in cuisine that you try or it's just come, read, an, an, read an, um, an Indigenous author, listen to some, you know, throat singing or, you know, some just live some of it and just as part of your daily life, don't make it like you have to go take a university course. I mean, if you want to, go for it. That's great. But there's all over the country tons of things going on every day that people don't know about and that it's open to everyone. Come and experience it. Ask questions. It's okay. Like people want to talk about it. It's a celebration for the most part. So I encourage people to just work it into the, you know, watch APTN. You know, listen to Candy Potter <laughs> on CBC. Like, he's awesome. Like, you know, Doug Kelly, like there's Don Kelly, sorry, the, the, the comedian and uh, Andrew Hayden Taylor. Like there's so many great, uh, Thomas King, there's great you know, art, artists out there, writers, singers, I think art and culture, art is a great way to learn about a culture, you know, music, uh, you know, A Tribe Called Red or, you know, what have you. It's just amazing just to have it and it, it open your eyes to it in, in, not the, in non-traditional senses, right? Like you don't have to, to take a class. You know, you can, just can be your every day. Any final thoughts to share? Any answers to questions that I neglected to ask? You know, I think I can't say this enough that everybody, it's very individual. 
So I always, you know, I'm not a, a pooper. I don't want to poop on anything. But I always like to put a little, you know, my little flag out there is that I can't stress enough that pace is important, you know, and a respectful pace of change is important. And really trying to avoid the swath. My individual experience isn't the same as my, my colleagues or my fellow Aboriginal or Indigenous executives either. So I think that as a whole in the public service, and even as a whole of the country, as we, we, you know, we take this path together, and like I said, we're trying to bring those two histories into one, you know, that we, we keep in mind that everybody has lived a very different life, as any Canadian has, as let's say you have from your siblings or your parents have and stuff. And and as long as we recognize that one, there is not one solution to any situation, and that's okay, that we're taking this together and, and we'll evolve and we'll get it wrong sometimes, but it's okay. We're, we're in it together. Indigenous Perspectives, Stories from Indigenous Public Servants, is a production of Employment and Social Development Canada. All opinions expressed on Indigenous perspectives are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer. Our main title music is by Boogie the Beat. I'm Todd Lyons, host, writer, and technical producer for this series. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.